I remember first watching that TED talk when it came out. I think it was in 2005, 2004. It was one of those sort of lightning moments. I think it hit me like a bullet train. And I just thought, yes, this is exactly it. Like, schools do kill creativity. Um, all the things he was saying, it was like all these things that I'd never managed to formulate the words in my head, but kind of, I think, instinctively knew. And that kind of spurred me on a huge amount to feel comfortable being in the learning space. And I must admit, I still don't 100% feel comfortable being in an academic space because I don't feel like an academic, if that makes sense. But it spurred me on thinking that education does need some sort of a revolution. It does need a massive change. And I think in any industry, it's hard for that change to come from the inside. It normally comes from people who have nothing to do with the academic world. Fairly proud to say I have nothing to do with the academic world. <laughs> Welcome to A Load of BS with me, Daniel Ross. After the last show with Rory Sutherland and John Cleese on creativity and play, we shift gears today, although with some continuity, as will become clear, to the subject of education with my guest Chris Rawlinson about his online education company, 42 Courses, and how behavioural science has influenced its formation and growth. Apart from running an education company, Chris is a qualified pilot and happens to be massively dyslexic. He's also a cancer survivor, former vineyard owner, and to his wife's chagrin, a massive Lego enthusiast, having reached the rarefied air of completing the one-metre-long Saturn V rocket, a space shuttle, a mini Yoda, and the Porsche 911. Christmas and birthdays are easy with Chris. More importantly, Chris is a creative spark, an all-round lovely human being who is consistently kind and generous with me, and that's what I love about him most. Enjoy the show! Chris, welcome to A Load of BS. It's my pleasure to welcome you today. It's, it's an honour to be speaking BST. It's been a while. It has been a while. It's fantastic that you're here finally to talk some BS with me. Now, with your business 42 courses in mind, today we're going to discuss education in the context of behavioural science. In many sectors now, behavioural science has entered the mainstream globally uh, of public policy, innovation, development and implementation. And I think the education sector is no different, experiencing a dramatic experience expansion of behaviourally informed strategies to improve things like student outcome, whether that's from primary school kids through to adults seeking to acquire new skills uh, and certifications. I think it's important at the start to say that, you know, BS interventions are never a silver bullet. And as I suspect you may argue, they certainly don't replace great teachers or well-formed curricula and supporting learning environments, but they can provide a powerful complement that can help improve access to engagement with and success in learning. And I think all walks of life, we often behave in ways that might not serve our best interests, whether it's procrastinating instead of revising for a test or preferring an extra chocolate biscuit instead of going for a run. But it is a fact that's often missing from traditional economic models, which expect people to behave rationally at all times. And life, as we know, is rather messier than that. So with all that said, Chris, let's get into the discussion. And a simple starter before we get into the real BS is what is 42 Courses? What does it do? 
So, thanks. There's a lot to take in. I'm massively dyslexic, so apologies if these answers aren't as succinct as normal. And that was part of the reason why I started the company in the first place, to be honest. So, just while I remember, I think that when you talked about behavioral science um, being something that has permeated lots of industries, perhaps not so much the education industry. I mean, like anything, I guess it's not a must have. It's just if you want to be a better teacher, I think if you understood the principles and power that behavioral science can give you, you would become a much better teacher for it. And, and it's those kind of principles that we've used when we designed 42 courses. And the kind of short story of how it came about was really my background as a bit wacky and weird. I used to be a commercial pilot and then I ended up running a vineyard in South Africa and that was good fun. And from there, my job at the vineyard was mostly marketing and sales. And we were one of the first brands to grow a business successfully through digital marketing. And so from there, I ended up wandering somehow into Ogilvy and WPP, which is a big communications network, which is how I met Rory Sutherland, who I think you've had on the show before, an amazing chap. And when I was at Ogilvy, like any big company, you have to do corporate training. There's a lot of it. The problem is most of it is incredibly dry, boring, um, not inspirational in any way, shape or forward. Yeah, it was just not great, really. I don't think conversations around adult education really happened very much. It was kind of, we need to do this, so we'll just do it. There was no bigger picture thinking. Um, if I think of most of my friends and colleagues, apart from perhaps now, because being in the education world, you know, no one really was talking about, oh, I can't wait to do this next e-learning course, or I can't wait to do this next course. Once you finish school, I think a lot of people are so traumatized by the experience. <laughs> They never really want to go back to it because it's like a chore. And I just thought that's so sad because it's kind of critical, especially in our lifetime. We've seen incredible change happening, particularly in the marketing area, you know, with technology changing everything. So you kind of need to constantly be relearning. I think it's like that Alban Toffler quote, one of my favorites, you know, the illiterates of the 21st century won't be those who cannot read and write. It'll be those who fail to unlearn and relearn. And I think that was kind of sticking in my head for a long time. And I just thought there must be a better way to do this. So with a friend of mine um, called Dave Duarte, who's an amazing chap in, in Cape Town in South Africa, we created a thing called the Ogilvy Digital Marketing Academy. And the role of it was to upskill Ogilvy on the world of digital marketing. This was many, many years ago. I won't bore you with all the minutiae, but essentially we created a training program that was fun and enjoyable. Neither of us were academics, but we had both had success in that industry. So we taught people the practical skills, but we used a lot of gamification, a lot of storytelling, a lot of humor to get the content across. And I think using humor and storytelling is still key. And I think the way that you do that is often by, again, working with behavior. So if you're using behavioral science principles, it works much better than if you're not. So understanding them again was key. These classes were all real world, um, but obviously it's quite hard to scale those. So our thinking was, oh gosh, it would be amazing if we could put this in, into a digital thing because people were loving it. And then we looked at e-learning platforms for about two years and just found them to be wanting really. And I don't think a lot of them have really changed that much, even over the pandemic. They're good, but not great, I think is probably generous. So we thought, okay, well, bugger it. I'm going to create my own platform. Using a lot of lessons from the world of advertising and creativity and behavioral science, we created 42 courses. And the idea was to create an education platform for adults for continued learning, where you're going to learn the practical skills in an enjoyable and fun way, rather than learning academic theory or learn the real world business practical stuff. So 
Yeah, it's been going well. Fantastic. And we'll come back to the impact of lockdown and the pandemic on education a little later. But I wanted to ask, you know, you've done a lot of things in your career, different things. How much do you think that your own, dare I say, unconventional both path in your career, but also your own path in education has impacted the way that you've built 42 courses? Massively. I never actually went to university. I really struggled at school with dyslexia. So I didn't perform particularly well at school, but I've always loved learning. I mean, I love school as well. I just wasn't very good at it. So when I left, I didn't end up going to university. I ended up getting a job. I was working at sort of a, a little local hi-fi store, but then I ended up just talking to people and I quite enjoyed the sales side of things. Probably wife would tell me I'm more of an extrovert. So I love talking to people and I just found that fascinating. And I ended up befriending a rep from a company called Bowers and Wilkins. And he introduced me to a job at a place called Graham's Hi-Fi, which is, if you ever live in London, it's sort of the premium poshest or one of the poshest uh, hi-fi stores you can work in. And when I went there, I ended up helping to start build a smart homes division. This is like back in like 2001 or something. It was really fun. We got to chat to you know, the head of Deutsche Bank. We had Terry Gilliam was a customer and Nick Hornsby was a customer. So it was, it was amazing fun. And then I think that that gave me a love of technology at an early age. And then I just kind of got bored and felt like I wanted something else. And luckily I was doing well at the job. So I managed to save some money. So I rolled the dice and went over to South Africa and got a commercial pilot's license. Loved the flying, but then found it was kind of a, a bit like once you actually start doing it for a job, it's a bit like some people say, it's like a glorified taxi driver. It's great fun. It's very cool. You're in a, in a fantastic cockpit view. Your office view is amazing, but it can get a little bit monotonous because you're kind of take you off land, take off land. It's not super difficult. So that was when I sort of ended up meeting someone else and then got into the wine industry. And then from there, I, I mean, I didn't have any marketing experience. I guess I'd done sales, but sales is a bit different to marketing, I think. But I was blogging at the time and helped start a bunch of fun events with friends. So we had started, there's a chap called Matt, Matt Mullenweg. He's a good friend he started a thing called wordpress which is the world's largest blogging platform so we started the first ever word camp this was actually over in cape town even though i'm from the uk ended up over there somehow and it was all of these random connections over time and learning things on the job i mean none of those i guess with the flying you know i had to do academic sort of style learning and that you had to read books and memorize things which i struggled with but persisted and managed to make it through but you're always learning these new skills skills. Um, it always kept me exciting. I think the reason why I stayed in advertising for so long was that, you know, in order to sell a product well, you know, one day you may be working on Cadbury's chocolate, the next day you might be working on British Airways. If you want to sell those products, you have to know a bit about that industry. So if you're in advertising, you're constantly having to do mostly self-guided deep dives into different industries. And I just found that fascinating. I still do. I still love that kind of thing. And thanks to the internet, you can do it. Indeed. I know, like me, you know, you've always been a fan of the late and great educator, Sir Ken Robinson, who promoted far greater creativity in education. Interesting subject. How has Ken's thinking influenced you? I remember the, I remember first watching that TED Talk when it came out. I think it was in 2005, 2004. It was one of those sort of lightning moments. I think it hit me like a bullet train. And I just thought, yes, this is exactly it. Like, 
schools do kill creativity. Um, all the things he was saying, it was like all these things that I'd never managed to formulate the words in my head, but kind of, I think, instinctively knew. And that kind of spurred me on a huge amount to feel comfortable being in the learning space. And I must admit, I still don't 100% feel comfortable being in an academic space because I don't feel like an academic, if that makes sense. But it spurred me on thinking that education does need some sort of a revolution. It does need a massive change. And I think in any industry, it's hard for that change to come from the inside. It normally comes from people who have nothing to do with the academic world. Fairly proud to say I have nothing to do with the academic world. No, I, I think your outside view in adds enormous value and freshness to it. There's no harm in that at all. But let me ask you, what educational outcomes then does 42 Courses look for? What type of experiences do you want to provide to your students? I mean, the key thing for us is, I guess in a perfect world, we want it to feel a little bit like you're having an internship at a company. So if you want to learn something in life, nothing beats real world experience of doing it. The problem is that's normally very hard. We can't all work at Ogilvy. We can't all go and have a job at Barclays for a bit if we want to learn about finance. We can't all work at the world's biggest companies. But if we can work with some of those companies and get some of their experts who are the sorts of people that you would interact with when you at that company in a dream world and share their thinking in the way that they do things. I think that gives people a huge amount of encouragement to be able to build their confidence on learning this new skill and then ultimately be able to go out there and do the thing in the real world. And I don't think these things need to take months. I think these things can take days. So all of our courses are set up like that. We work with people like Ogilvy, um, people like Barclays, but we've got lots of courses with Canva as well. They're like the Oscars of the ad world, I guess. We've even got courses with the International Happiness Institute who help create the Global Happiness Report. And when you're taking any of these courses, you're learning from you know the heads of those companies or the smartest people within those companies. I mean, with Ogilvy, it was Rory was our first big supporter. Um, we made the course on, I think we, it's just called Behavioral Economics with him. And a guy uh, called Dan Bennett, who's sort of one of his right-hand men, amazing chap, definitely follow him on Twitter if you don't already. It's always good to know the very famous person but what's also very interesting is to know the people that circulate around their spheres dan is one of those people definitely agree good recommendation yeah (laughs) so yeah that's what we've been doing we've been getting these amazing people filming them taking down the advice that they would give to their colleagues and then we package those up into courses around topics that we believe are very helpful for pretty much anyone in business today so we're trying to take i guess stanford call it the t-shaped people isn't it you have a narrow deep dive sort of area of experience which you know or area of expertise that you know very well but if you want to be really great it helps to know a little about a lot and I guess our stuff is a little about a lot and at the heart of the 42 courses model is tapping into the vast knowledge bank that sits in corporate institutions outside of academic ones and it's trying to put all that together and harness it and share it in a very accessible way I'm not mistaken Yeah, 100%. And I don't think you need to share company secrets. It's often the way that you do things is for any company, there may be a certain internal process that makes them better than the others. But if you're doing strategy, it's going to follow pretty much the same process. You may call it something slightly different, but it's always going to be the same. So when we teach strategy, we have some of the best strategists from the best ad agencies and best companies teaching you strategy. And they'll they'll each share the way that they explain things when they're teaching it to their colleagues. So 
it just yeah it makes it way more approachable and it feels personal without it being super personal if that makes sense no absolutely do you think that you could apply the 42 courses model into other learning environments like say primary or secondary school or, or is it best geared for adult remote learning i think it would absolutely work anywhere we had an email from a chap who's a father in his 40s um his kid he was a nine-year-old kid and they were going through i think it was behavioral economics and they were doing the course on their TV. So we never designed the platform for that. We designed it to be accessible anywhere. So he obviously went to, the, he had a smart TV where you could go to the website. Um, he was watching some of the videos and reading some of the stuff and doing this course. And the way that our courses work is you kind of earn points and badges as you go along and you get answer streaks and all this sort of stuff. Try and have fun with it. And his son came in and said, you know, daddy, what are you doing? He goes, I'm just taking a course. And he goes, but this looks so fun. Why is my school not like this? So I think, it absolutely could be. We use so many different behavioral science principles that help people. So things like consistency, which is about people feel good about themselves and more likely to be happy. So we kind of were constantly nudging people and telling them how wonderful they are when they do a good thing. Uh, so it builds their confidence and they're more likely to go forward. The, the holy grail for us, I think, is we wanted to build the business and learn and grow through partnering with brands so that we could make money and have a business that enables me to live. But the holy grail going forward is that as this grows, we learn a formula for how to make learning very enjoyable and very accessible to everyone. And then hopefully in the future, we can white label this to other people. At the moment, we're just, we're not venture backed. So this is my life savings, mortgage my house kind of thing. So it's just a money time thing, I guess. Certainly, I think it's in our plan for the future. We're just probably not quite there yet. Getting close. I think being able to live is a perfectly reasonable motivation, particularly under those circumstances. Well, we'll come on to a little more in a moment on some of the behavioral science techniques that you're using. But you touched on another point earlier, which interests me, which is that education does seem to lag behind other sectors, be it finance or advertising, as far as adoption of BS is concerned. Why do you think that is? Why is education rather behind other sectors? I have a few guesses. It runs counterintuitive to the way that you would initially think. What I think happens is that in academia, although you think that academia would be incredibly advanced and progressive because there's lots of young people there, you're experimenting all the time with things, the actual structure on how they do things is even more ingrained than in most corporates. In most corporates, if you don't shift and change, eventually your company will die. With academic institutions, they haven't really needed to change that much. I mean, the pandemic's probably been the only thing that's affected them in the last 120 years. And even then, most universities have still managed to make record profits because they've not actually had to run a campus, really. They've just smashed everything online, paid for less people to do maintenance and stuff, and still charge students pretty much full price and in most places exactly full price. I think it's because the top in most of these sort of massive academic institutions, there are a lot of people who have been there for a long time and who are very comfortable in the way that things are. And changing those kind of institutions is like anything that's very big, tends to be quite hard. So I think there are lots of people in the academic world who I speak to who cannot wait for change and who are really keen for it. The problem is they tend to be 
younger or more maverick style teachers and not the people necessarily running it. And even when the people who run it want to change it, I think it's very hard for them to do it. It's a shame and it seems weird because you would have thought they'd be all over it. They can afford to fail a million times when they experiment with stuff, but they don't really. Yeah, and I think so much of that is, is very valid. I think also simplistically, education tends to sit in non-profit and there's just far more money flowing through sectors like advertising and finance, which I think also gives it greater opportunity in terms of change, adopting new techniques, investing in new ways of doing things, let's say. I guess like a lot of these academic institutions I was reading the other day, I mean, most of the ones in, in the States, they have millions or billions of pounds in, in trust. So the motivation to change simply from a financial point of view isn't as tough as it's going to be for a business. Yeah, I think that's right. Now, one of the challenges, of course, of online education is that it's by definition remote. Now, you started to touch on some of the things that you're doing from a BS perspective, you touched on how you create a sense of fun, how you create a sense of gamification in terms of how you assess and communicate with your students. But I want to just dig a little deeper into that to understand, you know, how are you really creating motivation and a sense of belonging in purely online courses? So there's not just one thing, there's tons of different things. I started writing a list here of the different behavioral principles that we read. I'm not going to bother going through all of these, but I tried to create a list just so that when I was prepped for this conversation, I knew what kind of principles we were using. I had down here, chunking makes sense. We make everything, you know, people consume content much easier if it's in bite-sized pieces. And I think particularly when you're at work doing a job, you can't afford to have two hours or even an hour just going to do some learning stuff. You probably have to fit it in between your jobs. So you may have 10 to 15 minutes. So all of our lessons are little 10 to 15 minute bite-sized chunks. We use chunking. We use lots of gamification techniques of which most most of those are behavioral science based. So we've got lots of nudging, goal gradient effects. So as you go through, there's a clear feedback on your progression to show you how far you've gone and how far you've got left. There's lots of social norms. So there's leaderboards to help motivate you to continue your learning. And if you're in a company and we found that has been very valuable for our corporate clients, most corporate learning is on another level of bad. <laughs> the average completion rates for corporate e-learning is often sub 10%, which I guess is not that much different to completion rates for non-corporate learning, but it's bad. And I think the reason why is that the end user, the employee, isn't actually paying for it. And when you don't pay for something, you don't value it. The example I often give is if you're in a bar and a party and, and you've paid for a drink and you have to leave, you probably drink your drink. If you've been given the drink for free and you've got to leave, you probably just leave. So you value things less when you don't pay for them. So it's a tough job when you're doing training online, you know, not in a classroom with someone to say, hey, uh, stop doing what you're doing and follow this. And they got all the other things going along. So the gamification and leaderboard stuff on that has been amazing because we put companies into their own teams. So if I was learning with you, I'd be like, okay, Daniel's two points ahead of me. I'm going to beat Daniel. Also, no one wants to be at the bottom of a leaderboard. So it adds huge encouragement. Some of the other things we've done is we ask lots of different question types. And one of them we called opinion-based questions. So what these are is we tell you about something and then we say, what would you think or how would you solve this problem? Type in your answer. And then when you press enter, it shows you everyone else's answer in the world who's taken that. And I think that's very important. People seem to love these because it allows you to see the solution or a perspective from someone else's point of view, which normally you don't get in an online learning environment. But 
is kind of critical when you're at university or, or any other academic institution. You want to learn from your peers and see what they think. Otherwise, you just have your blinkers on. So those kind of things, A, they give you another point of view, but also they make you feel like you're not doing this alone because you can see other people's answers. You can see what other people are doing. There's obviously a lot of stuff that we have to do to make sure that there's not nonsense answers going in there. So we, compared to a lot of online learning, we do quite a lot of manual marking as well. So certain things will ask you to fill out a form or draw something or do something and then we'll actually mark it ourselves and if someone gets something wrong we'll email them back so even though it's online you get a sense that you're doing this with other people and that you're not alone and i think that's kind of key for the stuff to work really well in, in online learning well what i love about the examples which you're highlighting is that often it's the really simple but clever bs interventions which have the most significant impact they're not always quick, but they are certainly should be relatively cheap to implement. So making a difference by, you know, for example, changing some choice architecture or changing the messaging, the framing, or providing simple tools and checklists can have enormous impact in terms of the engagement that you then get, I think. A hundred percent. Absolutely. I don't think anything that we're doing is rocket science. You know, I don't have a like computer science degree or a behavioral science degree or anything like that. A lot of this was just, I think we were very lucky. And the reason why we were very lucky was the first course that we did was with Rory on behavioral economics. And so as we were building the platform at the same time, we were making the first course with Rory. And I didn't even know what behavioral science was. I wish I did. I mean, I wish I'd been taught this topic at school because I honestly think it's the subject that's changed my life the most for the better in every point of an aspect of it. It's helped me in my relationship life. It's helped me a lot in my work life. It's helped me in every area, which is just phenomenal. But yeah, thank God we were making this course with Rory because at the same time as we were learning and making the course with him, we were like, wow, that sounds amazing. I wonder whether we should build that into the platform. And there are a lot of stuff that we knew already. And I think Rory often says that if you're in advertising, a lot of behavioral science, if you're good at advertising, you probably already know, you just don't know that you know it. And I think that is absolutely true. So we took a lot of those lessons to make the platform what it is today. Yeah, I mean, BS at times is codifying what is a lot of common sense, but clearly not everyone is applying. I mean, you talked about the degree to which behavioral science has impacted a lot of aspects of your life, not only from a work point of view. I mean, I can't help but ask, how has it positively impacted your relationships? I think it helps you understand how certain decisions or why certain things arise or, or come up because ultimately it's around human behavior so if you better understand human behavior when your partner uh, does something that you're like oh god like why are you doing that it helps you understand that there's probably something else going on and maybe allows you to pause for a second and think what that is and often you'll then realize what it is and not lose your temper or not go like oh god so annoying and be able to deal with it a couple of years ago I uh, annoyingly got a stage three cancer and I had a bit of time on my hands when I was doing sort of chemotherapy and stuff to really dig into in stuff a bit more. And, and most of the books I read during that time were on behavioral science and a little bit about psychology as well. But I don't know, for me, it almost gave me a huge amount of comfort. It may sound really stupid, but I think the better I can understand people and their motivations, the more comfortable and happy I can be in my own life, <laughs> the less stress I get around things because ultimately I think it's just allowed me to understand that most things that happen, nothing to do with me or something else. It's There's, there's always some other factor that, that's there and that's fine. And it helps me to act and behave in a way that will encourage more, hopefully, good behavior and niceties than things that are not so nice. 
I think that makes a lot of sense. I think being sympathetic to one's own and one's partner's unconscious biases, recognizing our own and others' quirks, foibles, and at times irrational decision-making processes and and behaviors must give a lot of nuance to the way one conducts a relationship. Uh, I can only see that adding value. Let's get back to the 42 courses because I want to actually understand then how are you measuring engagement? Then you talked about some of the tricks and the techniques that you're using to keep people engaged and motivated but what are the pointers that you're looking for which equals success i mean i've often said my measure of success probably doesn't work quite so much in the pandemic but my my dream scenario is the day when i get onto a tube or a bus in london or somewhere in the world and rather than someone playing angry birds or some terrible mobile phone game they're taking a course and learning something new and having just as much fun doing it that's my holy grail of success the way that we measure stuff at the moment is we obviously we look a lot at the reviews but the courses and luckily they've all been I'd say sort of 99 point now and out of 100 they're all fantastic which is great makes us all very proud we've been invited to weddings which was quite good someone who took our happiness course so they did fix their relationship which is insane definitely working in education can be an amazing thing when you get it right people send you the most insane feedback we had a letter I don't know whether you remember earlier in the year there was a military coup in Myanmar and we had quite a few customers there don't really know why but we had a couple of emails from people saying look I'm really sorry but my renewal's coming up this year and I don't know whether you've heard but there's a military coup and they keep on turning off the internet so it's been really hard to learn um, I just want to say thank you so much you know you've, you've really helped me grow this year but I don't feel like I can renew at the moment but I can't wait to come back when we have stable internet again and when there isn't a military coup and I was like who sends an email to apologise for not renewing a membership because of a military coup yeah because of a military coup so I thought that was very good but the other things we look at are completely completion rates. So our completion rates compared to our peers tend to be much better. So again, like the average completion rate for e-learning courses across paid and unpaid is still around six or seven percent. If it's paid, it goes up to around 30 percentish, which is still obviously not great. That's a huge number of people who aren't even bothering to finish the course. With ours, depending on how the wind's blowing, it's normally minimum around 75 percent, but normally around sort of lower 80s, high 70s. So it gives me confidence that the learning that's going on or that the methodology that we're using is encouraging people to not only take the course and start it, but see it through to completion. We do track when people drop off. So in our analytics, we can see when someone sort of gets to a lesson that's not quite right, we can check that. But yeah, a lot of it has been for us on on completion rates and on interviews with customers, just seeing how happy they are or unhappy, listening to our customers and changing things. We change things all the time, even in our courses. So even though we made the behavioral economics course four years ago, I think that was one of our first courses, we changed that course hundreds of times at least you know updated academic references changed questions so we've even added totally new lessons and swapped out videos over the years so if you took that course when it was first launched and compared it to the course that you took today it would actually be a totally different course we don't charge you extra to do that as well (laughs) it's quite nice Well, that all said, but if we accept that all learners are individual and unique and that personalization is part of all our consumer experience vocabulary nowadays, how do you then structure your courses and indeed the way 
you go to market to personalize the experience, to offer people choices that fit with their situation, their needs and their desires? To be honest, I think that kind of choice architecture, that figuring out what course you should be taking right now is probably a part that we're not great at. As we've added more courses, you get choice paralysis. It becomes harder and harder to figure out what course you should be taking. So one of the things we're working on at the moment is trying to figure out how do we help suggest people to go to courses. At the moment, we do it very simplistically, which is once you've taken a course, we suggest other courses that might fit based on what you've just learned. But if you come to our site and you've never heard of us and you just go to 42courses.com, we'll show you some highlighted courses, some of the ones which are most popular, but the rest of them are kind of in a bit of a jumbled up order. So yeah, we do that not well at all. But you're trying to create some kind of Netflix-like pathway and experience, right? A hundred percent. There's a few things that we're doing. We've got a project that's sort of there in the wings with Netflix at the moment themselves. And the idea is to try and create learning pathways. So we sell courses to businesses, but we also sell courses to customers, just anyone. So what we've tried to do with the business side of things is we realized that most businesses want people to take content stream of courses. So we're starting to allow that to happen, or we've created a new part of our website so that can happen. If you're an individual, we're looking to do the same. So the way that we'll fix it is sort of using two things. One is categorizing the courses to make it a bit easier. So if you want to upskill yourself in creativity or problem solving, we'll give you the path. The second is kind of what I thought would be quite fun is the kind of idea of a personality test. It's not going to be 100% accurate, but it'll be an enjoyable thing. And you'll certainly get some fun courses suggested to you that are roughly right. But at the moment, we have 25 courses, I think. We launched probably around five or six a year. So we've taken an inordinate amount of time to make them and research them and write them. So at the moment, it's mostly people who have found out about a course, they want to take something. So it's quite clear what they want. But yeah, we are finding that as people come to us, we need to guide them more. And and so those are the things that we're doing. Yeah. And the more courses you build, the more data you collect, the more you understand your students better, the richer, more personalized pathways that you'll be able to create. A hundred percent. And I mean, when you start something, you have to figure it out yourself, right? Like when we started, we didn't know necessarily what customers wanted. We had to take a bet and go for it. And in my head, I kind of tried to think of what are the things that we should have been taught at school, but weren't. And so I tried to think of the subjects that have helped me the most in life so far and been the most impactful. And then let's do a course on that. Luckily, I knew some people who were very good at that. So we did stuff on innovation and problem solving and behavioral science. And then we've kind of grown it as we go forward. So we started doing, just before the pandemic, we started doing lots of courses on wellness and well-being. I think those have been some of the most popular ones during the pandemic. It's been fascinating to see. Like the happiness course, for instance, pre-pandemic, yeah, it's doing okay, plodding along. The the growth of that course during the pandemic was hundreds of percent increase. Um, It's been insane to see. Well, let's talk about education in lockdown then, since you raise it just again there. I think there have rightly been great concerns about the value of education during the pandemic, whether that's from primary through to postgraduate education. What has surprised you? What have you learned about the industry over the last couple of years? Because my follow-up to that would be, how would we educate our children differently if we had our lockdown time again? Perhaps that's 
I think the thing which I learned the most, which was kind of why I started the company, was I don't believe that you can take traditional education and just plant it on a screen and make it digital. It doesn't quite work. And we've seen that with other industries. If you think of the print industry, when that became sort of more digital, at first they were just taking essentially PDF versions of the newspaper and putting it online. It was a miserable failure. Same with the music industry. They took a 12-track CD or LP and just put it online quite work like that. And I think we're seeing the same with academia, why it's taken so long. And to be honest, I think it has taken a global pandemic for it to be really shown to be insanely bad in most cases. But essentially what most online learning is at the moment is that you've kind of got two general fields of play, which is you've got traditional academia. So you've got sort of Coursera and type platforms where it's highly academic. Here is the PDF version of the book. Here is the lecture that you would have got at school, but split up into maybe 15 minute bite-sized chunks at its best. On the other end, you've got Masterclass, which is long TED Talks, very enjoyable, but you haven't got a lot of stuff in the middle. And I think what we wanted to do is provide the academic rigor of something that you would get from a kind of Coursera with the enjoyment factor that you would get with a kind of masterclass. Um, I think what we've seen with most schooling, um, I haven't got kids yet, so I can only go off what my friends have said, but they tend to have a terrible nightmare with it. How was it for you? Was it fun? Well, for me, ours is far too young to be worrying about education in front of a screen. She's just about to turn one years old, but I had huge sympathy for friends who had kids of, you know, sort of five years and plus, incredibly tough trying to balance work and overseeing their children's learning programs all at the same time. But you talk about some other edtech businesses like Coursera, Masterclass, Khan Academy. I wonder in terms of other inspirations outside of education, I wonder even, you know, sites like Wikipedia or other places online that are well-recognized and managed. Where else have you got food for thought to inspire you in 42 courses? I think for me, a lot of it probably originally came from blogging because that's what I started doing years and years and years ago. And it's how we grew the vineyard back in the day as well. It's actually kind of interesting. I was thinking about the parallels of this this morning. If you think about the wine industry, most people find it probably posh and up its own ass, And it makes it quite hard for other people to get into it. No one likes feeling stupid. And I think wine often makes people feel a bit stupid because they look at a wine list and they have no idea what it is. And they don't know what the different cultivars are. It doesn't help that in every country they do things differently. So in France, everything is labelled by the region. In, in New World Wine, it's labelled by the cultivars. You know, maybe Sauvignon Blanc or Merlot in South Africa, but in France, it'll be Burgundy or whatever. So it's quite confusing. So when we were starting the vineyard, our thing with the blogging was to make wine approachable and enjoyable. So we wrote articles about it and interviewed people about it and made it so that it was less wanky and more <laughs> just plain down to earth and enjoyable. And I think that's the same as what we're trying to do with the topics that we teach. Essentially, I guess each lesson for us is a kind of a blog post. You know, it's a 10 to 15 minute chunk with written text normally told as a story with hyperlinks, which is kind of what a blog post is. And then we always have a visual element because we've got picture superiority effects. So people take in and retain information much more through visuals than they do through just words alone. But you kind of need both. So you want the enjoyment factor, which you can get from the video and from nice images, but you need the 
effort, like the kind of IKEA effect part of it needs to be that you need to put a little bit of effort into the reading and, and answering of the question. And each of those is, I guess, kind of made like a blog. When we made the platform, even the back end looks a little bit like kind of WordPress because it was what I was familiar with and it worked so easily. But what's great about it is it enables us to, you know, if we find a new story or something better, we can go in and edit it right away. It's easy peasy. The wine analogy makes a lot of sense to me, actually, because I was thinking as we were talking that one of the sort of flip side challenges of online driven learning is information overload. You, of course, talked about chunking. You know, the wine analogy leads us towards this sort of sense of creating accessibility. But I think, you know, imagine it can be a huge problem for students doing online learning. One of the roles that 42 Courses has to play is about, you know, curating information in a way that engages but doesn't overwhelm, which I hope is what you've been saying. Yeah, 100%. What we try and do is we'll tell you the stuff that you want to know in plain English in an enjoyable way. But then what we always do is we carefully find articles that would allow you to go down the rabbit hole if you want to, which is kind of how people instinctively learn online, right? If you didn't want to take an online learning course, you would probably just go to Google or YouTube and you would search for what it is that you want to learn and you would read or watch a whole load of stuff. The problem is that it's not guided and you don't know whether what you're reading or watching is nonsense or not. So the reason why you would pay to take a course, because if you think about it, access to all the information in the world is already freely available online. There is no reason for anyone to pay to take an e-learning course. And I run an e-learning company. But if you want to learn something and you want to know that what you're learning is correct and you want to do it in the best way, you're going to save yourself a huge amount of time if you take a course online, generally speaking, if it's from a good academic institution or from a good learning institution, which is hopefully what we do. We save people time by sort of creating these courses that mean that you don't need to search around to find the right answer. You're going to learn the best answer from the best people in a quick and enjoyable way. As we think about wrapping up, I want to turn to the future and perhaps some ways that behavioral science might be integrated into education further. And one topic that interests me, and I think which experts and policymakers discuss a lot, is assessment and alternative methods to that. Our system is mainly focused on graded exam-based scores, but of course that doesn't suit all temperaments and talents. So what do you think, for example, about the concept of gradeless teaching? Is that something which could be a sensible alternative to adopt in our education system? them. I would say yes, 100%. If we had had gradeless teaching at school, I think my life would be a lot better and I would have got a lot smarter a lot faster. The problem is if you're teaching to a strict curriculum where you know that you're going to be have an exam at the end of term or at the end of whatever year on X, Y, and Z, you're just going to focus on X, Y, and Z with a massive bias in a rote way, like this is exactly what you will need to say in the exam in order to pass. This is how you will need to write that. And it takes away all the creativity, all of the joy, all of the exploration. If I look back at our courses, we give certifications at the end. So in order to pass one of our courses, you have to get over 75% of the course correct. You have to have finished all of the answers. And if you have over 75% and you finish the course, then you earn your certification. If I could get away with not giving a certification, I would. I mean, we can't because you need something to prove that you've done the course. But I think in schooling, I would absolutely love it if you could have that kind of personalization and to allow a class or an individual to wander into different topics and different fields because in real life it's not like you're looking at topics individually you don't wake up and do history then geography then maths life is a combination of all of those things at the same time but in education we split everything up I understand kind of roughly why why we do it but yeah I mean it'd be amazing to have a free range schooling if <laughs> word for it 
I think there's a balance because different methods suit different people. And I think, by the way, while I accept your point that, you know, taking away grades opens up creativity, also there's something to be said about learning under pressure, exam technique and all that. But I think obsessing about it and having it as the only methodology for assessment is clearly restricting. And it's interesting, this point about the certifications you give, the kind of culture for mini certification, whether it's from yourselves or other corporations, I think challenges the conventional academic model, which is that, you know, you have a CV filled with university degrees, for example. What says that actually the value of, say, a Google coding certificate or a 42 courses BS certificate might actually have far more value in the workplace if you're going for a specific role than having done another degree 10 years ago. I think this is a really interesting shift. Yeah, and thankfully it is happening. People have been brilliant at it and they don't require you to have a degree now to start or to get a job with them. And they're still attracting incredibly bright, smart individuals. And I think with us, we've seen it as well. We've had numerous emails from customers who have taken jobs with Ogilvy or other agencies agencies from taking Rory's course, which is amazing if you can help someone in their career to get a job. That's been fantastic for us. A dream for me would be if you could have that full circle. So you provide the training, help someone get a job, and you're also helping companies to find great individuals. And I do think you're right with the schooling thing. I do think you need pressure. I just don't think you need an exam to create pressure to test someone's knowledge. I think there are perhaps other ways to do it. Well, lastly, let me ask you, do you see that other ways not yet fully tested that we could better integrate behavioral science into the design of education systems and resources? What are you seeing? What excites you? Where do you think it goes next? I think that the things that excite me at the moment, some of the ways that technology might open up personalization of education. So even though I run an online learning company, I'm not naive. I think that the best learning, you know, if you could, we would all be trained by Rory Sutherland or we would all be trained by Martin Sorrell or whoever it is that you admire. The problem is, you know, they obviously have a limited amount of time and they can't afford to train everyone in the world because it's going to be crazy. But with some of the sorts of, you know, if you take a logical progression of the way that certain parts of artificial intelligence are going or bots are going, I don't think we're a million miles away from having very smart helpers, which would be able to tap into the knowledge of some of these incredible people and share that in a way that seems very personalized to people. At the moment with us, the personalization that we give is the manual marking and feedback. And most people are very pleasantly surprised by that and enjoy it. But it would be great if we had more time. I mean, at the moment, if we wanted to give actual physical feedback to absolutely everyone with written emails and phone calls, we would need to charge you know, probably quadruple the price that we do for the courses at the moment. But we want to try and make stuff affordable. So it's that fine balance. I think the way that's going to be solved is through technology. But a lot of this I'm talking about is verging on sci-fi stuff. One of my dreams, I hope it happens in my lifetime, I would love to be able to put on a smart contact lens and then see myself in ancient Rome and learn about Caesar and the Romans and all these sort of things. I mean, that would just be amazing, kind of ready player one type uh, stuff. But I mean, we're heading that way. Companies are putting so much money into that. So it's going to happen at the moment. We're not close enough because the computing power needed is just too much to write those worlds um to design them would take too much time because it would be too reliant on individuals but if you think about the progression of things even in our lifetime you know to build a website now is it takes you five seconds compared to even five years ago well the potential for virtual reality in education is clearly huge and by the way chris only lastly you, you've clearly got a lot of dreams list them out and see in which order hopefully they can be accomplished but shall we wrap up with some quick fire sure go for it let's do it okay what's the kindest thing anyone's ever done for you 
I think work-wise, Rory helping me. Without him, I wouldn't have been able to start 42 courses, full stop. Personal-wise, my family and my wife and best friend supporting me going through cancer. You know very quickly then who your friends are, and I think everyone rallied around me so much, and I will forever be grateful for them. What's your most powerful memory? Probably as a child, just playing around and being happy in the countryside and the freeness of it. Random, but true. Fair enough. Tell us something interesting about yourself most people don't know. Most people up until this podcast probably don't know about the cancer thing. Um, Certainly most people don't know that I'm massively dyslexic and running an education company. And probably a lot of people don't know that I can also fly a plane. Yeah, you gave away all the good answers earlier, unfortunately. (laughs) But yeah, fair enough. Which book do you gift most regularly? Alchemy. (laughs) <laughs> it's a very boring answer you're not the only one to answer like that but credit to rory for that what's your desert island music i'd have to get some very strange eclectic mix <laughs> of cheesy hip-hop cold play and classical music that album doesn't exist but i've got some playlists on my spotify that would hit the spot great and finally winding down away from work tell me a bit more about your hobbies It's been an interesting time for hobbies with lockdown. Perhaps haven't been able to do a lot of them, but over lockdown, one of my favourite hobbies, which is driving my wife insane, has been building Lego. What have you built? So far, I've built Saturn V rocket. It's about a metre long, which is amazing. A space shuttle. And then a friend of mine for my 40th, they gave me a mini Lego Yoda that was quite fun to build. My best friend gave me a Porsche 911 to build as well, which is fantastic. So yeah, my Christmas present dream list is to get the Millennium Falcon. I think my wife will leave me if I do because it's about a metre wide cool. ginormous. So if not to get you a Porsche 911 or any other fantasy vehicle, we know how to give it to you in other forms. It's Lego. Fantastic. And with that, Chris, let me thank you hugely okay. yeah. for spending time with me today talking a load of education BS. You know, behavioural science is so instructive in education. It counts for why learners perhaps don't study for important exams or even attend class, but can also help us design simple interventions or nudges to help us make better choices for ourselves. And you know, you've shared very fresh light today, both on what's happening in the field and where we might go next. I think it's still early days with plenty to accomplish. So I suspect being the CEO of an ed tech business is an exciting place to be. Just to quote Richard Thaler, Nobel Prize winning behavioral scientist, he wrote in his 2015 book, Misbehaving, that we need to run experiments to figure out how to improve in education and have only just started doing so. Well, that was seven years ago. And I think alongside healthcare, education remains the sector with greatest disruptive power to transform society so chris be well thank you and speak soon thanks i hope you enjoyed the episode i really find chris a joy to listen to his ambition with 42 courses is inspiring and if you haven't checked out what they offer go and have a look at 42courses.com and if you fancy doing a course let me divert you briefly to a load of bs.substack.com where you can find this episode get your unique link to refer a friend to the pod and access amongst other rewards big discounts to 42 courses kindly provided by Chris uniquely for a load of BS listeners. Next time on a load of BS, I'm talking about translating behavioral science from the laboratory and into the wild. The subject of Dilip Soman and Nina Mazar's soon to be published book, Behavioral Science in the Wild. Amongst other roles, Dilip is Director of Behavioral Economics in Action at Rotman School of Management, where Nina was also formerly co-director. Pre-order your copy of the book now as this subject matter is absolutely crucial to widespread application of BS beyond the neat cafeteria experiments MIT, Harvard and Stanford. It's a compilation of essays and so it's rich with varied insight and case study. I hope you'll join me for that chat with Dilip and Nina. 
If you haven't already, please hit the subscribe button or follow follow me on whichever platform uh, you listen to your podcast and do subscribe at a load of bs.substack.com so you get access to all my articles too. Happy Easter and or Passover. Until next time.